welcome to the first ever podcast episode of Christian Combatives. To those of you who have supported this channel on YouTube and Rumble, thank you so much for your support. It is greatly appreciated. Um, so the question, first and foremost, why a podcast? Why, why is Christian Combatives now a YouTube channel, Rumble channel, and a podcast? Well, the fact of the matter is that this is what people have, have asked for. Um, a lot of the content that I put out on, on the, on the video channels, a lot of the content is prepared. It's not necessarily scripted, but a lot of them, I have manuscripts from my sermons that I, that I base the conversations off of. Uh, in the case of the theses videos, those are all very scripted. Uh, I write down my thoughts so I can get through them as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, but a lot of people have been asking for more casual interaction, uh, a way to casually listen for whatever reason they want to hear me talk about theology or uh, philosophy or society or something like that for, for 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and a lot of them would like to listen in the car without having any sort of visual component. And, and while many of the videos are structured in such a way that you don't need the visual component, I thought, you know what, this is, this is a good idea to, um, you know, to give this, to give this format a try. We'll see how it works. Um, Again, this is the first episode, so it's kind of an introductory thing for me. Uh, I'm not familiar with with doing any sort of podcasting so far, uh, but you know, you learn by doing. In any case, the primary reason for this particular episode is not just an introduction, but also because a lot of the podcast streaming services require at least one episode uploaded before they can activate the service. And I need to test out how the services are working, how the different distribution platforms are working. It's this whole technical mess that I know nothing about. So please, please have patience with me, bear with me uh, in this journey. Now, rather than just giving you an empty, an empty episode of, Hey, how's it going? This is, you know, paladin actual checking in. Um, I wanted to actually uh, to give you something that you know, uh, that refers back to a conversation that I that I had earlier today that I think is I think is worth worth discussing and and, and it can be discussed more in detail. Uh, going forward, uh, I think it might be a good idea to to have some sessions on on Discord or other platforms where people are able to ask me questions in real time. I'd also like to have have various guests on to talk about different topics uh, and discuss different things that are going on. So look forward for that in the future. In the meantime, uh, let's talk about a topic that somebody asked me um, asked me earlier earlier today. Uh, they were talking with me, about, and I'm not going to use their name um, just just for the sake of anonymity. They were talking to me today about about Marian apparitions and, and miraculous events, and they were saying, "Well, you know, as as a I believe they were they were previously non denominational, um, and uh, and often they would be approached in conversation by Roman Catholics." Now, the Roman Catholics would say, well, you know, these miraculous um, things that happen, these apparitions, these Marian apparitions, these are kind of evidence. This is proof that God has chosen us and has chosen um, the, the, the Bishop of Rome and kind of the entire magisterium to represent his, his church on earth. Um, now, in response, I sent, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful video done by, by the Reverend um, Dr. Jordan B. Cooper on, on YouTube, if you search for Jordan B. Cooper. Um, the title of the, vid- the video is, do, Mir- do Miracles Prove That the Rome, excuse me, Do Miracles Prove That Rome is the True Church? And he gets into the details of, well, look, there's, there's miracles that happen in, in, in other denominations as well. And in fact, non-Christian groups will, will claim miracles as a way to demonstrate uh, that they actually have interaction with God. So merely saying, look, we have these miracles, regardless of how convincing or unconvincing they are, um, that's not 
enough in and of itself to say, look, this is the mark of the true church is miracles. Now, as a Lutheran, I would say that the mark that marks of the true church include um, this is the place where the the word is properly preached, the law and the gospel, and the sacraments rightly administered. These are important facets of the true church, and I think that they're far more important than any sort of miraculous thing. Uh, again, there are miracles done uh, in Scripture. There are miracles that are done um, by by non-believers. One of the first examples I think of is is in Egypt. So the Israelites um, before the Exodus, the Israelites. Um, have to be taken out of Egypt. Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, and Moses goes to Egypt, and Moses performs these miracles in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is, at least at the beginning, particularly unimpressed. You see, he has some some court magicians, some sorcerers, and they can perform at least a couple a couple of these miracles. At a certain point, they get left behind in the dust, but to some degree, they're able to perform miraculous signs. Now, is this just trickery? Is this just illusion? Is this alliance with the... Uh, uh, with the demonic, um, it could be any or all of these things. We have other examples. We have uh, the witch of Endor in um, uh, in the Old Testament, and, and she's able to communicate with the dead, or at least she's able to communicate with the demonic, um, pretending to be the dead. Uh, later on in the New Testament, you have examples of I believe that there's somebody who's a who's being used as a as an oracle, as a seer, in the same sort of way. A, a demon possessed, I think it's a demon possessed woman, and I think it's Paul. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you for sure. I think it's Paul. And when he does, he casts the demon out of this person. Uh, and once the demon is, is cast out of the person, they are no longer able to be used for their kind of miraculous prophetic uh, sorcery. And <laughs> the people are particularly mad at Paul. They're saying, hey, you know, you've destroyed my source of income. I had this demon-possessed woman, and she was making me a lot of money. So... In, in cases like that, I would say that, you know, just off the bat, okay, well, let's say you have miracles. Yeah, God does use miracles to come and to kind of demonstrate his authority to say, you know, this is a prophet of God. Uh, you want proof? Here's a miracle. Call down fire from heaven, you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, uh, and he uses it uh, in the sense of the apostles. The apostles are able to perform miraculous acts. And this is, again, to demonstrate that they have the authority to speak uh, as people sent by God. Jesus himself performs miracles as God to demonstrate his authority as God. But the ability and, uh, and the history of being able to perform and, and have the miraculous is not in and of itself a sign, a surefire sign of, um, you know, this is, this is God's chosen infallible magisterium, prophet, apostle, you know, something like that. Uh, in fact, we're warned in Scripture at a certain point um, that there will be people who come performing miracles to, to deceive, even if possible, the elect. So the idea that there are people who will be able to perform some sorts of sign or signs and wonders um, to, to, to the point of deception. Uh, and and uh, perhaps other religions have managed to, to, to do this to some degree. Um, there's a uh, there's a pastor. I believe his name is Pastor Bennett. I think I can't, I'm not entirely sure. You can probably look it up. And and he's done some time in Madagascar, and he's dealt a lot with exorcisms. And one of the things that he talks about regarding exorcisms is um, is that a lot of times the people get possessed uh, by demons by trying to seek out kind of miraculous help. Now. Um, he explains that sometimes the process goes along the lines of this, is uh, the, the demons will inflict or afflict some sort of malady on a person, 
And then miraculously, the witch doctor will be able to take away the malady. Well, the malady was inflicted, you know, in the first place by the demon. So, of course, the demon is able to take it away. It's not not really a healing, but it's, you know, the demon's got his foot on the person's neck and he takes his foot off. That's not really a healing. That's just, you know, the demon ceasing to afflict this particular person with this particular thing. Now, of course, in exchange, uh, the person promises all sorts of horrible things and it, it spirals out of control. So again, uh, getting back to my point is that there are cases where the miraculous and this, I don't know what to call it, supernatural, but the metaphysical um, happens and it's not necessarily a surefire sign that, you know, this means that this person is speaking for God. It's not necessarily what that sign is. It, it, it could be something that helps and points to that, but not necessarily, not in and of itself in isolation. So along these lines, uh, we, we continue to discuss this sort of, um, uh, me, and, me and this friend of mine, we, just, we continue to discuss this, this sort of topic. We move past kind of Marian apparitions and uh, Fatima and, and the Virgin de Guadalupe and things like that. And, and we continue to talk about, well, he wanted to talk about a couple of other things regarding the interaction between his non-denominational friends and the Roman Catholics. Um, and one of the one of the differences, um, one of the disagreements, one of the arguments that they have is regarding tradition. Now, now I'm not necessarily just talking about you know, uh, you know, the three pillars of the Roman Catholic Church, the Magisterium, Holy Tradition, and Scripture, but tradition in the sense of of creeds, for example, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, um, uh, traditions in the sense of liturgy, traditions in the sense of um, you know, lit liturgical garb, wearing albs and miters and, and copes and stoles and all these other things. These traditions. So he's, he asked, uh, he asked kind of, what, what, what is the Lutheran perspective on these things? Like, where do you draw the line for tradition was specifically the question. He asks, how do you know when to draw the line for tradition? Um, and a a as a Lutheran, this is actually this is less difficult to answer than it might be for some other denominations. So to do a little bit of kind of, to, to give you a little bit of backstory history um, regarding the Reformation, and I'm sure you're already aware of this, is regarding the Reformation, uh, you had a lot of groups that came up after Luther uh, and kind of in response, in protestation, one might say, in protestation to the Roman Catholic Church. And there were some of these groups that saw what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. They saw a lot of the later innovations and additions of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and... To be fair, not all of these innovations were necessarily bad things, but they said, well, this is too difficult to distinguish between the good and the bad. None of this stuff is commanded in scripture. You know, take, for example, you know, the, 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 the liturgical garb. Uh, none of this is commanded in scripture. So let's just throw it all away. Let's get rid of all of it and start kind of tabula rasa. Let's start with the church of the apostles. Now that's pretty impossible to do, but the idea was there that, okay, if we can't distinguish between good and bad tradition, then maybe we just need to get get rid of all tradition entirely. And yeah, there's some logic behind that. If there if it is so difficult to distinguish, uh, and it's a net negative to have it all, okay, that, that that's a simple solution. But the simple solution in this case isn't necessarily the best solution. You see, God doesn't God doesn't forbid the creation of man made traditions. Uh, he he rebukes those who use man-made traditions to counteract what's what's said in Scripture. Uh, he talks about those who 
um, who would use man-made traditions to forbid the eating of certain foods or forbid marriage, for example. And he says that, you know, these are sinful things. These are doctrines of demons. You know, there will come among you at some point people who will teach these things. They will forbid marriage and forbid eating of certain types, excuse me, eating of certain types of food. Um, so in that sense, in the biblical sense, it isn't necessarily the case that all tradition is bad. And I'll give you an example of a tradition that that I, I think is good. And it seemed that Jesus himself participated in it. And this is the, the tradition of the synagogues. This is a tradition of kind of teaching in the synagogues. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, you have examples of the temple. The temple is not the same thing as a synagogue. Temple is where you would have all the sacerdotal activities. You would have the priests doing sacrifices, the forgiveness of sins and things like that. You would have, I mean, they would have other functions as well. For example, they would have to declare somebody clean or unclean. If, if you were uh, an example of scripture is somebody who's healed of leprosy is, um, is the priest is supposed to examine you at the temple. And, uh, and, and there's actually kind of a protocol for, you know, if, if the priest sees this or if he sees this and if this disappears in a certain amount of time, then after this period of time, he could declare the person clean again, that, that, that sort of thing. So there's a function for temples, but the function for synagogues was that of teaching. It wasn't the place where the priests would go to do sacerdotal priestly functions. It was a place where you would have rabbis, which means teacher. You would have teachers go. Now, if you think in the sense of, okay, who's at these different locations, you would you would probably find not necessarily the, you wouldn't find necessarily the high priests. They wouldn't be the ones teaching there at the synagogues, but you'd find the Pharisees. The job of the Pharisees was to be the ones who knew the Bible cover to cover, or at least the Old Testament, scroll to scroll. They would know, uh, they would know, and then, then they would teach about this. Hopefully they would teach faithfully. I know, the, I know you hear the word Pharisee, and immediately you think of all the bad examples of the Pharisees. There were good Pharisees, believe it or not. If you want to classify Jesus as a religious figure at the time, he would probably fall under the category of Pharisee as a teacher of God's word, as opposed to he, was, he wasn't working in the temple as a priest. Obviously, he's our high priest, and he is the temple, and he is the sacrifice, and he is the altar, and he's all those things. But in the sense of the, of the, the mortal organization, he was not working at the temple as, you know, in the function of the ephod and the, and the, and the priest doing the, doing the sacrifices. But he was, he was teaching. He was teaching in the synagogue. We have an example early in his ministry where he's, he's in the synagogue, and he's sitting down, which is a teaching position, uh, and somebody hands him a scroll, and they open up the scroll, and, and he reads a passage from the scroll, and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your, in your presence. And he's teaching about Scripture. Now, why am I bringing this all up, all the synagogue stuff? Because the synagogue isn't established in the Old Testament. The synagogue is a man-made tradition. Now, I, I, I will ask you a question, something for you to consider. Is it a good tradition to have a localized place where people can go and have learned men teach them about the Word of God. Is that a good tradition? I would say yes. Now, there's a million different ways to skin this cat. Could that represent a monastery? Could that represent a, a, a church, a seminary? Could it represent a group of men or even men and women who, you know, study God's Word and just, you know, a, <laughs> a Christian Bible club or something like that? Absolutely. And all of those things are examples of kind of ways that we've come up. Well, not, not so much church. Church is, church is more God-established, God but it's, that's, that's a different topic. Um, but these are all kind of ways that, that, that mankind has come up with, with traditions, man-made traditions, to, to answer the demand for, for you know, 
for learning on on Christianity, learning on the topic of of the Bible. You're you're listening to one right now. This this podcast um, with God's blessing. I would like to be able to talk about Scripture with you guys. This is you know a man made podcast, and the concept of podcast was not established <laughs> among the apostles at Pentecost or anything like that. So this is an example of a man-made tradition that is good. So getting back to the question, where do you draw the line for tradition? And I would say that the best way to draw the line is, one, is it, is it scriptural? If, if it's something that comes out of scripture, good. Uh, if it's something that contradicts scripture, bad. Bad, obviously bad. <laughs> Any teaching that's contradicting Scripture and contradicting the teachings of Scripture is bad and should be thrown out. So that's obviously over the line in the wrong direction. What if it's what if what if it's in in adiaphron? What if, what if it's neither commanded nor kind of prescribed or described in Scripture? What about something like that? Well, uh, and, and if it's neither you know necessarily beneficial or necessarily detrimental, I mean, it, again, it could be fine to, to have neutral neutral sort of uh, traditions is is fine. There's not really a, there's not a problem with it if it's not pulling you away from Christ. Um, now, is it something that you need to command? No. It, especially if it's adiaphora, especially if it's something where it's, it's neutral. What if it's something that's beneficial? So I would say that it is beneficial to have a, uh, a lectionary. Whether you use one-year lectionary, three-year lectionary, whatever lectionary you use, it is beneficial to have a set of prescribed readings where multiple churches are each preaching, you know, the, the pastor of the church is each, they're preaching on the same text. So there's the same gospel reading, for example, uh, in this church, in this parish, as there is, you know, the one across town, or maybe even the one across the world. I think that there's that there's something taught in the unity of that. Uh, I think that there's a benefit that the pastor doesn't have to kind of come up with uh, come up with what text to, to, to do on his own, that wise and learned men before us have come up with a, a wonderful system that we can use, a wonderful tool that they've invented to, to make it easier to pick what text to preach, you know, on Palm Sunday, for example, or Good Shepherd Sunday, I think that this is absolutely beneficial. So, so would would I command the use of the of of, of a lectionary? I use the one year historic one year lectionary, for example. Would I command the use of that? No, because God doesn't command the use of it. Would I suggest and heavily encourage people to use it? Yes in the sense that I want you to have something good that you can use and something that is beneficial for you to use. Yes, it's a man-made tradition, and I think it might be better than what other people are using. If your pastor, for example, maybe he's absolutely brilliant, but let's say, for example, he struggles every week to come up with a sermon topic because he's just he, he tries to find something to preach on, and then he has to look through Scripture to kind of find text to back up what he's preaching. And I think that, that that's that's backwards. Rather than kind of reading the Scripture and, and exegeting from Scripture, he's he's got an idea and he's trying to find—the idea might be completely right, and he's trying to find Scripture to support it. There's there's times when that's a good thing. If you're if you're preaching at a wedding, if you're preaching at a funeral, you've got, <laughs> you've got the subject already, and now you need to find Scripture that relates to it. But in the general sense, being able to preach week to week— um, and, and not having a structure to do it, I think, is worse, objectively worse, than having a structure. Now, again, the structure itself is not infallible. The lectionary is not infallible. If you have different lectionaries, that's fine. The more people you have using the same lectionary, on the other hand, 
the more beauty there is in that unity and the more you can say, hey, my pastor talked about, you know, such as the, uh, the, the parable of the sower. Oh, mine did too. What did yours say? Well, he focused on, you know, the seed that fell on the rocky soil. Oh, mine focused on, you know, the, the soil doesn't, you know, fix itself. So there's, there's a beauty in the unity. There's a utility in it. It's, it's beneficial. It's neither commanded nor forbidden from, uh, in scripture. So in that case, I would say, good. That's a tradition you can keep. Now, as Lutherans, uh, LCMS Lutheran, as I am particularly, as Lutherans, we look back at the traditions, and rather than taking the approach of, well, we got to keep all of the traditions because, you know, at some point there was there was some there was some unanimity. <laughs> at some point, the apostles all got along and agreed with stuff. So therefore, everything after that, we have to kind of unanimously agree on. And what did the church fathers say? We've got to agree on whatever. Um, Instead of taking that extreme, and, in, and instead of taking because it's, it's not true, uh, there's there's not there wasn't a continued unanimity until you know 1517, and then Luther screwed it up. Um, instead of taking that approach, uh, and, and, and pretending that there was a complete agreement when there wasn't, uh, and instead of taking the opposite approach of saying, well, we can't we can't parse out the good from the bad, so let's throw it all out. Uh, Lutherans, I believe have the correct approach. Now, now, it is the more difficult approach. You're sifting through, you know, wheat and chaff here, uh, good traditions and bad traditions, uh, and, and, and and keeping the good things. And I think the good traditions that are developed over time, many of them are, are absolutely worth keeping and, and propagating. Um, many of them teach. Many of them help in teaching. One example created by Luther is the small catechism. We use the small catechism in Lutheran churches not because a small catechism is in and of itself exclusively God's word, although it does contain it, but because the, large, the small catechism is is a, a great tool that was developed to help to, to memorize, to learn by heart the teachings of Scripture and to be able to test people and, and kind of have a standard of saying, oh, good, you know the Ten Commandments, you know the Lord's Prayer, you know the Apostles' Creed, you know what these things mean. Um, yeah, so in, in such cases, I think, I think it's entirely appropriate to, to kind of sit down and look at the traditions and say, this tradition is good. This tradition is beneficial. This tradition is not, is not, it, scripture does not speak against this tradition. Um, but instead, this is something that, that, you know, that benefits people that maybe it's not spoken about at all in scripture, or maybe it's kind of hinted at in scripture. Like, you know, we would get our liturgical garb from descriptions of, of the saints in heaven, for example, wearing, you know, white and standing around the, the altar or something like that. Um, to, to take these traditions and, and say, look, these ones are good. Let's keep them. Let's use them. They're, they're useful. They have utility. And then in addition to that, we can point to these traditions and say, look, this is, this is, way, this is the way that your grandmother did it. This is the way that your great-grandmother did it. There's a beauty in being able to, in being able to visit somebody two generations removed in the hospital uh, and, and go in there and start singing a hymn and they know the words to the hymn. There's a beauty in that tradition over, you know, carried on over multiple generations. So I would encourage people to find good traditions, to hold on. Well, there are already good traditions, uh, to hold on to good traditions. And if you create a good tradition, well, then good. Let it be examined. Let it be propagated. Let other people use it. Um, this is a good thing to, to create traditions that glorify God and help us to kind of study his word and, and understand and receive his promises. Um, so with that, this is, this is kind of, this is how I would, I would go about, I would go about kind of drawing the line. Is it, is it contrary to scripture? Is it commanded in scripture? Uh, is it neutral? Is it beneficial? Is it detrimental? Is it a distraction or does it teach? Some, there are some traditions that are perfectly good that if you do them and you don't teach about them, then it's just a stumbling block to people. People say, well, why are you doing that? It doesn't make any sense. It's just confusing. 
oh, maybe, you know, as good of a tradition as that is, maybe you need to teach first before you implement that tradition. Um, yeah. So with that, I hope you got something out of this. Uh, again, welcome to the first ever episode of the, of the Combatives podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day. God bless you and take care.